Hello, and welcome to What? The podcast where we have no idea what the hell is going on, but we're sticking with it. I'm your host, Ross, and let's begin. Today, we're back with Denzel and with a newcomer, Martel Joel. Kia ora. Uh, now, uh, Martel Joel, what, what, what do you do as a job? Um, well, um, I am... Um... I'm dis- not disappointed. Uh, it's probably a bit anticlimactical, anticlimaxical, anticlimaxy, to tell you um, I'm just a teacher. Hmm. Hmm. Well, teaching in its own right can have spits of fun and interesting areas. Could do. Could do. Is there any experiences you've had with teaching that have just been really interesting to see? Um. Well, the first the first thing is that I'm a new teacher. This is my second year, so that means a year and a half at this point. And due to COVID and everything so far, it means closer to like a year of actual teaching. And I didn't really have any training beforehand, so I'm, I'm doing my training as we go, because um, areas of shortage, you can kind of get special exceptions. So I don't have like a whole lot of years of experience to draw from. Um, what was the question? Interesting areas. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I don't know, I teach Māori, and that is kind of, I guess, unusual, or um, has comes with its own kind of areas of intersection or clash, um, being completely Pākehā. So I suppose, I suppose one of the things for me is just um, the idea of being a Pākehā person and being a white minority in a largely, like, not white world. Although having said that, um, it's not a completely Māori world. There are Indian people and Pacific Island people and people of mixed descent and some other Pākehā people as well who take Māori right through the years. But um, a, a white, completely white person um, as an ethnic minority and then teaching a language which is largely lost um, on the brink of being lost um, to people whose it is and who have been lost from it is kind of a strange situation to be in. Um, and I guess I guess that sets up an idea of um, like who are you to be like doing this, and then that that just sets up a whole experience, I guess, because um, you know like sometimes it's strange to like be like, hey, you guys, sit down, shut up, or hey, you guys, um, you need to listen to what I have to say. Um, so where the interest value in that is, I don't know, but that's where my mind went. Um, just just the situation, the dynamic of like being an ethnic minority in a in an ethnic minority kind of. Role. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, what what inspired you to become uh, a teacher? Um, I don't really know. Um, so I began I began learning Maori when I was quite young. I began teaching myself when I was at primary school, and I was lucky enough that I had a teacher there who was a fluent Maori speaker, um, who helped me. But I mean, I was largely just using a dictionary and like school journals and stuff. Um. And then I took it through school and did a degree in it eventually. But I think um, it was just the idea of, um, I'm one of my family lines, I'm quite a new New Zealander. And so it was just the idea of like, what is it not to be, you know, like German anymore or Scottish anymore, um, but still be a newcomer, like in New Zealand, being a second generation New Zealander or third. And um, so like, what's your identity here, I guess? And when you, when you look around, everything here is very indigenous, it's very Māori. Even though it gets suppressed and we don't see a lot of it, we don't see a lot of active culture. Like all the names of places, you know, all the 
a lot of stuff that happens is very Māori, a lot of buildings, a lot of stuff, a lot of the class divisions around you, all those kinds of things are very Māori. Um, and so I think the curiosity was just like, who am I in this place? And that was part of learning about it. And then from there, um, it was like learning about Māori history and colonisation and things like that, and then what's my role in that? But beyond that, um, it was just something I found I had an interest in. So, yeah, that's why. Has the job you... Is, is this job that you have right now what you were expecting? Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, one of the things I think about is what, what is the role of a Pākehā person in trying to meet the Māori world? And so then, as I was kind of like clumsily beginning to talk about earlier... Um, that's that's a kind of confusing thing, and so I don't really know what I expected to be, you know, like walking in as a teacher, as a person of authority and knowledge authority, um, giving a culture to people whose it is. Um, I mean, in some ways, no. I mean, in some in some ways, I spend very little time actually teaching, and so much time just doing administration and reporting and meetings and planning and parent-teacher interviews and marking and all the other stuff. Um, I thought there'd be a lot more kind of contact time. Um, I, I never really thought of it. Um, it was never the teaching itself, though, that attracted me either. It was the idea of um, being part of something bigger, I guess, being part of a language and culture revival, and um, like what a Pākehā role in that might be. Um, so I guess I was thinking of it as like community development through the medium of a school rather than you know teaching per se, um, which is weird because like I'm a very shy person. So, um, I don't know. I don't really know what I expected. I just sort of, like, fell into it on a whim, I guess. Um, but it's turned out to be really cool. Like, one of the things is actually, like, um, teenagers are really, like, cool and smart and hip. Like, um, makes me realise I'm much less of those things than I thought I was. The world's moved on. Um, yeah, so there, there are all sorts of kind of, like, cool benefits, I think, to, like... Um, being amongst, like, the now generation. It's cool to see, like, the feminist group is really flourishing, like, the environmental group is, like, really switched on and doing, um, planning at least some cool stuff. Um, some of the people here are, like, really woke, quite politically active, people who are, like, hard-out punks. Yeah, it's really cool. It's, I guess, like, if I thought I was expecting some of those, I wouldn't have been expecting some of those things. Well, um... <clears throat> what do you think your students think of you? And uh, do you care what they think? Yeah, I have no idea and I don't care. <laughs> I, I mean, I kind of do care in a way because, um, again, it's the whole like confusion of the position that I'm, I'm in. And it's like, if people think I shouldn't be here, or if people think I'm not really doing a good job, or if people think I don't have the whakapapa to like, teach Māori, like, I do actually care about that, and I think their opinions uh, um, count for a lot. But if, pe if people have thought those things, um, nobody's expressed it. And if it's, you know, like, I don't know, anything else, no, I don't really care. Um, one of the things you um, were talking about earlier before we started recording was, like, young people in their future. And um, this was reminded me of something I was starting to say and then forgot. But, um, oh, um, it was about, no, it's escaped me. Um, no, that was really weird. Sorry. That's all right. Let's stay up. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what do you strive to achieve teaching this subject, or is it your passion? 
Um, well, I, I suppose it's my passion in a way. I, I don't really know what my passion is. Before I, before I began teaching, I had, had a variety of failed alternative careers, including being an activist, being a community organizer, being an anarchist, all largely on the dole or as a student of being unemployed one way or another. Um, I, I, suppose, I suppose my passion is, um, you know, like something a bit more broadly political, a bit more um, leftist, decolonizing, um, community taking ownership of politics. Um, I would say alt left rather than alt right. So you know, not like, um, not like libertarianism, but more like um, you know, grassroots community, small government kind of ideals. And um, I guess I guess part of that is you know the community taking ownership for itself and. Part of that also is equality, is equality between indigenous community and colonizing community. So that's, that's one of the things I would say was a passion. And um, it's a path I've kind of followed, you know, like doing a Māori degree and doing most of a law degree, which I never quite finished, but which was about indigenous law and treaty and Māori land and um, the place of indigenous law in the New Zealand constitution and, and things like that. Um, so I suppose kind of by default, but... Um, yeah, the, the, the passion is broader. The, pas the passion is, you know, like more about um, promoting radical politics, I guess, um, or being part of a more radical kind of political movement, which I don't feel like I'm part of at all. I feel like I just turn up to my day job and work for the man and sold out completely. Sorry. But um, I guess I guess what I would hope to achieve in the setting of a school would be um, the idea, well, in broad strokes, it would be... Um, Doing some it would be being part of a decolonizing machine, which is very vague and non-specific. But um, I guess it would be the idea of you know like making Maori language accessible, um, making it non-threatening to Pākehā people, um, helping Pākehā people to um, meet the Maori world in some way. And I guess um, there have been a f you know like Pākehā have managed to play. Um, a kind of hinge role in some places, um, the language revival. So people like um, John Moorfield, who wrote a lot of the textbooks that still get used, and um, Richard Benton, who did a lot of the um, work for working out um, how, you know, like what the state and future of Maori language is. So like Pākehā can kind of have these roles because um, there's, there's an idea of like um, being a nexus between the Maori and the Pākehā worlds. Um, I don't see my role as anything as um, um, epic as what some other people have done, but um, I think the idea of being a hinge between Māori and Pākehā worlds is probably one of the achievements I'd hope for, for the furthering of Māori. What are your thoughts on the New Zealand Wars, re the um, colonisation of New Zealand? Um, that's a very broad and complex. That's a very large and complicated question. Yeah, I think. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. No. But that's that's fine. I I, th I think the first thing is calling them the New Zealand Wars is a great start. They got called the Land Wars, but land was only like a small part of the issues that were happening. Um, they called the Maori Wars sometimes, which wasn't that at all. Generally, it was British um, declaring war or or else Maori defending themselves um, against land seizures or um, preempting land strikes. Um, I mean, 
I guess. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess the New Zealand wars were inevitable, and they were part of a much bigger machine that that was happening. I think they're they're inevitable because the Treaty of Waitangi was probably never going to be upheld because it was written in a rush, and it was, I don't know, depending on who you talk to, it was probably written for the purpose of claiming sovereignty. And once that was claimed, you know, like it was pretty much considered a redundant document by a lot of the powers that be. I think. So. Um, Māori were always going to have a grievance, Māori were always going to be displaced from land, and when that happened, Māori were always going to react. And so, the idea that it was civil war, or that we've settled it, or that um, it was sorted out and now we need to move on, I think are kind of unfounded in a lot of ways. I, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think the Māori wars were just one manifestation of like Māori reacting against um, things that were happening to them unfairly. And we see a lot of those reactions continuing, although in more peaceful ways these days, mostly because war doesn't generally get declared on Māori. So what are your thoughts on the land settlements, the British taking the land and then these days they're giving the land back or reimbursing them? I mean, I have lots of thoughts about that. One is that, um, I can't remember the exact figures, but um, the amount that's being reversed, reimbursed is something like percent or 1.4 percent or some or 0.4 percent as I say I can't remember the figures but it's something you know like patronizingly small of what the value of the land is that's being reimbursed and um, I think you know the public upcry against that is um, um, appalling and um, I think yeah, there, there are so many things about the reaction to land settlements that really deeply trouble me and one, one of them is also, you know, there, there's, so, there's so much opposition to it on such flimsy grounds. One of them being that, um, oh, if you give money to Māori, they only lose it. In fact, Māori businesses generally flourish. And um, Māori businesses generally have, like, higher standards. They often have, like, a triple bottom line of social impact, environmental impact, profit for shareholders. There are criticisms that Māori businesses or, um, you know, like, the money doesn't trickle down, which I find very surprising because generally these um, claims come from, you know, like sort of rightist, sort of liberal free market demagogues who um, think that, who don't seem to mind that wealth never never trickles down in any, in any other situation. And in fact, I think wealth does actually trickle, trickle down to the community much more in um, Māori business and Māori enterprise than it does anywhere else in New Zealand. But um, you know, it's, it's a very complicated philosophical situation. So if you, or economic situation for that matter, so if you're given money and then you're expected to do the most community good with it, you're given a million dollars, do you give every person in your iwi $10 and, you know, tell them to make the best of it? Or do you spend a million dollars on like, you know, like a school that's free for everybody or scholarships that, you know, affect a few people but not others? Or do you invest that money and play the long game and over time, like slowly build up your assets, slowly build up your social ability, slowly build up your iwi welfare. And that's by and large the last thing that Māori do, the third thing. They um, are generally speaking very astute financial managers with a very, um, very well-developed um, sense of community. And generally speaking, they are very good at slowly building up assets, slowly building up community benefit. And this takes a long time. And 
also leads to other outcry by Pākehā when these things happen, that you know, now suddenly Māori have special benefit because I've been given money which I've used for scholarships which are only for Māori and you know, that will be decried as racist. And the, the whole thing is a complete circular argument and Māori can't win any, any way that they do, with anything that they do. But I think that um, of course we should be given, we should be giving reimbursement. I think what we give is much too small and we should be giving land where we can instead of money. And I think Māori are very gracious and offer, often accepting money. And Māori have been very clever sometimes at the way they've um, dealt deals such as Tainui who knew that um, the fiscal envelope would be more than the total amount that was offered and so they pegged their um, their settlement to the proportion that other people got so if suddenly everybody else got more tiny we would get a top up um, I thought that was very clever and I thought good on them um, but I think you know like there's, there's a lot more that needs to happen as well it needs to change about our culture and it's not just giving money it's about us accepting that Māori culture is a valid part of, part of New Zealand it's cultural redress it's allowing Māori culture to flourish in all sorts of ways. I think that's all part of the settlement that needs to happen, um, along with the money. Has have got, Sorry, I'm, I'm going back into the teaching no, area. All good. Um, has, has anyone ever discredited you for being a deteriorate teacher while also being white? Uh, not, not that I know of. Um, I wouldn't be surprised at all if um, people thought that, and they'd be very entitled to think that I wouldn't try and change their minds. Um, when I was studying, um, you know, like I was quite careful to talk to lecturers and say like, hey, you know, like some of the stuff is, you know, like he taung te reo, like language is a he tapu te matauranga, language and knowledge are valued and sacred things and can anyone just take it? And um, generally speaking, I was very much welcomed and encouraged um, to study. But I recognise as well that that's an artificial environment that people who are lecturers at uni and, you know, like in the academic world are already people who are actively promoting Māori through a world. And there are other people who take a view that, you know, like you should have a certain whakapapa to know certain things. Or, um, and those are not views I tend to encounter partly because I don't tend to be in those circles. And so I, I haven't personally had anything like that, but um, I, I wouldn't blame anybody for, for thinking that way. And um, if there are people, enough people who thought that I shouldn't be here doing it, I would um, listen to their views as well. Do you have any advice for someone that wants to teach or learn any Tereo or languages? Um, I mean, I, I mean, one piece of one thing that puts people off is that they feel like they're too old or it's too big a hurdle, and that's a in a, in a way like there's wisdom, some kind of wisdom in that. Like, do it as soon as you can, do it as young as you can. It's always easier. Um, I mean. Over the years, I've tried to learn some Hebrew as well for cultural reasons, and that was something I began as a teenager because I wasn't raised culturally um, that way. But um, it was much harder um, than learning it when I was learning Maori when I was small. Um, but by the same token, you know, it's it's not insurmountable. Um, I've, I have friends who Maori and Pakeha who have gone and done complete full immersion Maori courses and you know like started Māori University and and so on as adults in their 20s and 30s and um, they've all done well and 
um, one friend is now an early childhood teacher um, in a kohanga reo, he's completely Pākehā. He was just um, worried about his non-contact with Māori things and his ignorance of Māori tanga and um, took it on himself um, to learn Māori as an adult and he did that in a year. He did the Tohu Paitahi, which is a year-long full immersion course. So it's, it's completely doable. So, I mean, it gets harder, so don't delay it, but do it. And the other thing is, um, not to be religious about it, but, you know, like what the Buddha says, um, ignorance is one of the biggest poisons in the world. And the more, the more you learn, the better. And I, I'm not any kind of expert on New Zealand history and colonisation and... Um, bicultural dialogue um, but I have spent um, you know 20 years of serious study learning what I can uh, whether it's uh, whether it's um, political science or law or te reo Māori or whatever and it's an ongoing journey and I, I always feel like an amateur but um, by the same token you know like it's experience and it's contact that um, shape what you know and the, the, the more you learn, the more you understand. And I, 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 just, I just get really frustrated by people who armchair philosophize about um, race and culture and biculturalism and so on without making any real attempt to seriously study New Zealand history, to seriously study colonization around the world, North America, Australia, to seriously study the um, effects that it, you know, the parallels that they all have and our place and to actually meet the Māori world, to talk to Māori people, to experience Māori things, to learn the language and the, the mindsets and views that go with it. The more you know, the more, the more opinion you're entitled to have, I think. And, um, yeah, it's just, there's, there's nothing more valuable than educating yourself and learning. Because you, your views change all the time, and my views change all the time. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Just destroy the ignorance, get educated, be like the Buddha, that's all I can say. I just want to point out now before we go too far in, mm -hmm. or before we end, uh, the Pakia is the British when they, when they came into New Zealand, because not many people know that. Hmm. And it's it's interesting to see how many, how, how many people don't. Sorry, I just needed to point that out for the... <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Pakiha is a um, Pakiha is a phrase that was coined quite kind of early on for you know like non Maori people who were generally fair skinned um, who were coming into New Zealand. Uh, moving aside from teachings and te reo, do, uh, what do you think of uh, Maori cuisine? Oh, um, like, do you I, have a favorite dish? Oh. I mean, do you mean like what's become traditional, like on Marae around the country, or do you mean like cutting edge, or do you mean like really old? Because they're they're all, they're all different. Um, I did have a phase when I was um, really into bush food for various reasons you know, <laughs> of lifestyle and being unemployed and being moneyless and being nomadic. But um, I yeah. I, I'm I'm quite I'm quite interested in like the revival of you know I guess early or pre-European or early European kind early contact era kinds of foods. Um, um, 
I mean, there's nothing really favourite of myself, uh, of mine, myself. Um, but yeah, I guess I've, I guess what, one one thing I was quite interested in for a little while was the idea of um, developing some like New Zealand passion fruit and the called um, the called berry, and um, you know some some other things that were kind of some of the few really tasty things from the New Zealand bush. And sort of growing them, you know, developing them out into, you know, like species of your own, unique New Zealand fruits, um, which was something, you know, like I obviously never did. But um, yeah, I think I think there's there's, there's value in looking at um, the the early kinds of diets. Like there's there's a lot of seaweed, um, a lot of. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of kinds of things that we don't really think of as foods now, but which actually have quite high value and which actually quite, um, I guess, suited to people who live here. You know, like seasonally, the stuff you can gather year round. And I think it would be an interesting conservation project as well if you could grow um, some kinds of New Zealand foods in conjunction with, like, I don't know, bird breeding or I, I don't know. I, I, just, I just feel like there's a place for a distinctly New Zealand voice. And there are people who are starting to do that with um, bush foods and, um, you know, like using it as avant-garde, you know, infusing um, mapo into gin and um, making preserves of mutton bird and different types of things. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, those, those, those are my kind of rambling thoughts, I guess, that lead to nothing in particular that um, it would be good to think about some of the things that were used beforehand and how they could be used now um, and how they could be used for a wider purpose, a sort of wider New Zealand project than just interesting foods. Have you ever been travelling? Oh, a little bit. Um, yeah, again, in my not really completely over hippie days, um, I spent quite a while um, tra travelling around New Zealand um, on my bike sort of cycle to most of New Zealand <laughs> several times. The freedom camping and, you know, living more or less without money and getting into, you know, like, uh, traveling com traveling communities and things. I walked um, Te Araroa for a bit as well. I walked, attempted to walk from Bluff up um, the South Island. Got stalled for various reasons of injury and gear loss. But, um, yeah, so I've done quite a lot of like internal traveling. I've never owned a car, so it's always road trips have always been you know like you know, months long <laughs> yeah. on my bike or hitchhiking or whatever. And I've traveled overseas a little bit. I've cycled around the British Isles and been around, tacked around Europe a little bit, and that's that's been really transformational too. I think um, New Zealand is very much a small town and um, very inward looking, decreasingly. And Auckland is much more cosmopolitan than other places I've lived, which have been much more small town. Um, but, you know, still, um, New Zealand is still very prone to um, taking itself too seriously, thinking it's much more cultured than it is, thinking nowhere else is as good as it is, which is completely false. And contact with other cultures as they are is very enlightening and can be very transformative and has definitely changed me a great deal. Um, yeah. So I've done a little bit of travelling, but not as much as I'd like, but um, it's a very worthwhile thing. Uh, tra tra travelling overseas, what have you noticed that, like, you've you've noticed some things that they do that New Zealand doesn't know and you just thought it was a normal everyday thing? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, with 
Well, the first place I went for any length of time other than Australia was Britain. And um, I, I, was, I was kind of expecting it to be, you know, like basically in New Zealand of the north without Māori words and maybe a few castles. And I, I, was, I was really surprised at um, how culturally um, disparate, I guess, we've become. Like, I, I mean, being, um, depending on which line you take, like second or third generation New Zealander, like, I'm definitely not Irish anymore or definitely not, you know, Scottish anymore. I, I go there and it's quite alien. And... Um, That, that made it much easier to... Yeah, so there's, there's, there's something that's definitely a, a New Zealand flavour and a New Zealand aesthetic, which isn't the same as anywhere else. It's not the same as Australia. It's not the same as Britain. Uh, I, I suppose... I don't know. I, I, I suppose there, there, there are so many different things, and they're all small, that kind of point to it. But just for, just for the fact that um, in Britain, the culture that I would identify with, which would be the dominant white Anglo-Saxon culture... Um, would has been there, you know, in some form or another for the last fifty thousand years. You know, I saw some cave paintings that were around fifty thousand years old, rivaled rivaled the oldest ones in France. And there's artifacts and civilizations from all that time. And in New Zealand, you know, like my culture, the, the dominant white British culture has been here 200 years and has largely imported what it has from Britain and then largely discarded it. So we don't have stone buildings anymore, really, we've got a few. We don't have castles that aren't new. We don't have stone circles that aren't new that, or, you know, we don't have things like that that are ours at least. There are places like Ihumato, which are very old, but um, are somebody else's. Um, and it's, it's just, I, I think there's a, there's a feeling of human fleetingness when you go there. So, you know, you see something that's not even super old by British standards, you know, like you go to a village from the 15th century and people are still living in the houses. The houses are there, generations have gone through, the houses are still there. And you very much get a sense that you are um, less important than something, you know, everything else that's going around you. You're just, you know, like one little blip in all the life. Whereas here you feel much more important, you're making everything that's around you, you're, you're like sculpting all the earthworks, and, you know, um, you've got much more of a feeling of self-importance. Or it's other things like, um, you know, I was in Yorkshire for a little bit, and, you know, like riding my bike to the next village, and suddenly you cross the line into Derbyshire, which is, I don't know, 10 miles away or something, and then... You know, like the the language, the the dialect is almost completely impenetrable. You can't understand what they're saying, and you you know cross east instead of north into whatever the other shire was, and you know like the language is completely impenetrable in a different way. <laughs> and I don't know, just all these things, and it's still almost a feeling of like clan based life, in in a way, like yeah, the the, the culture, the culture, the way of life is just so different compared with what we have, and we think that that's our culture as Pakeha. We think that's the British is our culture, and in some ways we're more British than the British, but only in these tiny little narrow ways. And yeah, so there's there's something coming back home, which is distinctly New Zealand, which is nothing else. And that's I think very much to do with the infusion of, um, if well, Maori Tanga and Pacifica, and the fact that we're a South Pacific island, not a sub not a subarctic isle. Yeah, so lots of things.
Now I understand you've been on other radio stations or podcasts. Uh, would you like to talk about them? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I've been been on radio a little bit. which <laughs> uh, um, sounds much more grandiose. Than, um, so in, in Hamilton, where I've spent way too much of my life, um, it's free FM. Um, and any, any, anybody who's even, you know, like slightly ambitious in Hamilton can um, end up quite enmeshed in the community happenings. And, um, yeah, so one of, one of the things I was on was just an environmental show because um, environment is very much a focus in my life. Um, and that was talking about, I've been on a couple of them. One was talking about permaculture. It's my first tertiary qualification before I went to university when I was in my mid-twenties was to do a permaculture design certificate Permaculture being a um, form of organic agriculture, which is models itself on forest systems, so it's, it's very integrated. Um, it's, it tries to get high productivity out of very small areas. So it looks at the forest and says, like, why is there a square in a square meter of forest? Why is there so much biomass compared with like a square meter of wheat field or something like that? And there, 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 it's, there are all sorts of reasons. And so, yeah. Um, talking about that for a little bit, and I was um, also talking in a similar show about, um, I guess, permaculture and indigeneity, so is permaculture actually colonial? So um, I don't really know how you decolonize permaculture. And there's, there's, there's kind of a prevailing view that um, permaculture is very earth-friendly, earth-friendly, so that's what everybody needs, and indigenous people were very attached with the earth, so what they need is permaculture. And that's quite a colonial attitude, so that that's one way. Um, there can also be, in, in permaculture circles, an inability to recognise like the history of the land that they're on. Not always, but sometimes. Um, and the previous people and the stories of the land that they're using, and um, sounds new age, but maybe something like the energy flows that go with it, or... Um, yeah, previous patterns that, you know, indigenous people have noticed and used it for and then you know, gets overlaid with European patterns. So permaculture can be colonizing in that way. Um, and yeah, but it's it it it, it, it is it is tricky. because um, permaculture will also sometimes, you know, incorporate indigenous knowledge or indigenous systems and then there's the the issue on the other side of the coin of are you just taking somebody else's knowledge and culturally misappropriating it? So I don't know. I don't really know how you win. The answer, I think, is always you know like dialogue, as it is with everything. Dialogue with the people around you, finding out the history that's around you. Uh, any passing remarks or tips for people? Uh, I don't know. Uh, no, most most mostly I just ramble about what's on my mind and. It's probably completely uh, disconnected from everything else I say at any point in time. Um, I was just going to say something, and now it's now, <laughs> now it's escaped me. Um, no, go out, live your life. Don't do what I do, and then you know, like, spend fifteen years um, just idle and disorderly. But by the same token, do. Right. Oh, thank you, Marshall John. Thank you. And thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on What?